Joy and peace for the weary heart. Lift up your heads for your king has come. Sing for the light overwhelms the dark. Glory shining for all to see. Till the 
Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Faith. My name is Sam Krager, and I serve as the outreach pastor for our church. Whether you are joining us in person or online or catching up later with one of our recorded services, we are so glad to worship with you today. This Friday is Christmas. It's, it's practically here. No doubt this Christmas will be full of very different celebrations for most, if not all of us. But the one thing that you can be sure remains the same is that our reason for celebrating is just as wondrous and joyful as it has always been. A child was born to us and a savior was given to the world. I hope no matter what changes you face this Christmas, you can still find peace and joy in the birth of Jesus, our Lord. If you are new to the church, perhaps joining us for the first time, allow me to extend a special welcome. As a reminder, we encourage everyone from new guests to longtime members to download the Church Center app. This app has all sorts of great tools, including our sermon outline and events calendar, easy giving options, and much, much more. It is also the best way to submit prayer requests and a great way to connect with the church staff. So if you haven't already, be sure to download the Church Center app and stay up to date with everything that is happening at Faith. In just a few days on December 24th, uh, we will be having our Christmas Eve services at 3 p.m., 4.30 p.m., and 6 p.m. Child care for nursery and preschool age children will be available at the 4.30 p.m. service. All three services will be live streamed as well. In an effort to be sure we are as ready and as accommodating as possible, we have a big request to make of anyone and everyone who plans on attending our services on Christmas Eve. We would like you to register for the service you and your family and your guests plan on attending. You can do this by finding the registration link on the Church Center app in our weekly e-blast or on the homepage of our website. It's also, this can also be found on our social media pages. The registration process simply helps us make sure that we will have enough socially distanced distance seats available for all who wish to join us in person to celebrate the birth of Jesus on Christmas Eve. Each year during our Christmas Eve services, we also worship through the act of giving. And the offerings received during these services are put into our church's compassion fund, which we use to help our neighbors in the Manhattan community during their times of need. This year, we hope to share $2,000 of what is collected with a new organization in town called Be Able. This group seeks to, help seeks to help individuals who may have slipped through the gaps of Manhattan's social service network. They operate from the stance that it is crucial to love your neighbor as yourself, which includes serving our neighbors with compassion, dignity, and respect. You can learn more about Be Able at their website, beablecommunity.com. During the Christmas Eve service, you will be able to give directly in person, and as always, you can give online or through the Church Center app. On December 27th, our services will be a little different than usual. Instead of gathering here at the church in person, we will only have online services at 8.30 a.m. and 9.45 a.m., which can be viewed online on our Facebook page, on our YouTube page, or on our website. We plan to use this Sunday as a reflection and celebration of what God has done in our lives over the past year. And it would be a great morning to invite family and friends and neighbors and others to tune in with you and join in worship. We hope that you can join us online either at the 8.30 a.m. or 9.45 a.m. on December 27th. Again, we're so glad you are here joining us this morning. Now let's turn our attention to worship through song and sermon as we begin our service today. Good morning. I'd like to invite you to stand with us. 
Uh, lead us in our call to worship today. If you're joining us online, welcome. Thank you for joining us for service today. Words will be on the screen. I encourage us to pray this prayer out loud today. O Emmanuel, our King and our lawgiver, the hope of the nations and their Savior, come and save us, O Lord our God.
you came to save us and to reign in us forever. God, your salvation um, is a one-time act on our behalf, Lord, the life that we receive in you, but the life that we receive in you day to day, the strength that you renew us with, Father, is something that we desperately need. You came to reign in our lives as Lord and King forever and all eternity. And so, Lord, even now in our service today, would you reign? Would your authority and your power be made known completely and wholly today? We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. You know, all of us at different times face issues in our lives, difficulties, 
uh, in which we need somebody to come alongside us and walk with us. And it could be any number of things. It might be a transition in your life, retirement, or the loss of a job, uh, or it could be a painful relationship. It could be some uh, challenge you're facing, and you're just stuck. And sometimes the person that comes alongside us is a trusted friend, someone we've known for a long time. Uh, it could be a counselor or a therapist, a professional. Uh, but here at Faith, we have another option, someone to come alongside us, and that's a person that we have designated as a Stephen minister. It's a compassionate, trained person. And our Stephen ministers here at Faith are not counselors, uh, but they are trained in strategic ways and listening and caring skills. And most importantly, they have a genuine heart to come alongside people with compassion. A couple of years ago, I was uh, stuck in some issues that I was facing. And so I contacted the leader of our, our one of the leaders in our Stephen ministry, and I was paired up with someone to walk alongside me. And so we met weekly for a number of months, and it just was amazing in many ways. Uh, I felt, well, I, I appreciated the confidentiality. Uh, I felt heard. Uh, this is a person who asked me insightful questions, and this man prayed for me. If you are in need of a Stephen minister, uh, you can initiate this, this process and uh, just by contacting the church officer or in, in uh, talking to one of our pastors. And we currently have 15 active Stephen ministers, and today we're going to commission uh, four more, uh, one in this service. Uh, but these are, are people who have gone through 50 hours of training, which is a huge commitment, and I would just assure you that their sole motivation is to walk with people in compassion. And so today, uh, Carol, would you come on up? Today we're, we're commissioning Carol Lemons uh, in this service later in the morning. We'll also commission Beth Klug, Gretchen Fontanini, and Cindy Hollingsworth. Carol, on behalf of the congregation, we want to say thank you for uh, investing in other people. Uh, I personally believe that God will use you in amazing ways. God has gifted you, and God will give you all the grace you need. And so, thank you. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you've raised up this Stephen ministry, that there are people in our midst who have a genuine heart of compassion and who have the availability and the willingness to use their time to be trained and to meet with people. We pray for Carol, we pray for Beth and Gretchen and Cindy, that you would give each of them everything that they need. We pray, God, that you would sustain them. We pray that you would give them wisdom far beyond their experience, give them wisdom. And we pray that their walks with you would be strong and out of the overflow of their, their lives, they would meet people right where they, they are and that they would show the love of Christ, the compassion, the wisdom of Christ. God, our desire is that this, this body be healthy, and this is one of the ways that you are bringing that about. And so we pray that the Stephen ministry would be successful in your eyes and in the ways that really matter. And so we commit uh, Carol to you and Beth and Gretchen and Cindy. And God, as we turn to your word now, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears so that we might see and hear the things you desire for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Well, today we're going to consider Isaiah uh, 59. Can you hear me? Good. Okay. Uh, Today we're going to consider Isaiah 59, uh, all 21 verses. And so I would invite you to stand with me now as I read this chapter. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave spider's webs. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the streets, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle 
according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, every year we have a Christmas hymn sing in the middle of December. Every year but this year. And so it was was nixed because of COVID. But if you've ever been to that, uh, you may know that every year I request my favorite Christmas hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in the middle of the American Civil War. His son had enlisted in the Union Army uh, without his permission, and he was lying wounded in a hospital bed. And in 1863, on Christmas Day, Uh, Longfellow literally heard the bells. And when he heard the bells on that Christmas day, he penned this poem that was uh, uh, later uh, put to music. And one of the verses reads this way. He says, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so he recognized what all of us recognize. The angels came on the first Christmas and they announced peace on earth, goodwill to men. But across the world, hatred, violence, warfare rules the day. And of course, this Friday, that will be the case. Uh, Hate will be strong. It will mock the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And some of us, maybe many of us, actually have peace with God through faith in Jesus. But violence and warfare dominate the planet. Strife and disappointment taint every pleasure, every satisfaction that we experience. And so we feel this, don't we? And we long for a day when peace reigns in a permanent, comprehensive way. And we all understand we need much more than to get past COVID or to get past uh, a rough patch in our marriages or to get past a health scare or a job crisis. We need permanent, uh, comprehensive peace on earth. We want that to be the norm, not the exception. We long for the day when hatred is eradicated from the world and from the human heart. And today we're wrapping up our Advent series in the book of Isaiah. And that fierce passage that I just read that describes how the promised Messiah, Jesus, will one day intervene in human history and he will usher in permanent, comprehensive 
peace on earth. The Bible teaches that sin resides in the human heart, and sin is what destroys peace on earth. And so uh, sin creates all sorts of heartache and chaos and suffering. Therefore, if we really want permanent, comprehensive peace on earth, two things have to happen. Either There are two options. Either sin has to be removed from the human heart or sinners need to be removed from the earth. Isaiah 59 talks about both of those options. And God, in his grace, gives us this freedom, and he lays both of those options before every single one of us. He wants us to let him remove sin from our hearts. But if we won't, he will one day remove us from this refashioned heaven and earth. And so this chapter lays out the gospel in a very fascinating way. And as you, if you were paying attention, there's a lot of bad news in Isaiah 59. But we have to understand the bad news if we're going to see the good news as the amazing, unbelievable, great news that it actually is. And so it's a long chapter. I'm going to be summarizing a lot of it, but to, to just simplify the whole chapter, you can think of it as four words. We've got an outline on the website if you want to follow there. But it talks about depravity. It talks about repentance. It talks about justice. And it talks about covenant. Depravity, repentance, justice, and covenant. We begin with depravity in verses 1 through 8. Isaiah makes a very simple statement that establishes that God is not the problem here. Verse 1, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. The the problem is not that God has a limited reach and that he therefore can't reach down and save us from our our sin. No, throughout the book of Isaiah, God is powerful beginning in, in creation and up to the present day. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. The problem is not that God is dull of hearing. God's not up in heaven going, what? I don't quite understand what you're asking. I don't quite get what you're longing for. No, the problem throughout Isaiah is that we as humans, we're the ones who are dull of hearing. We don't understand what God is saying. And so in verses 2 through 8, we see the real problem. It's our sins. Verse 2, Isaiah says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so the real problem involves our thoughts and our words and our actions. Our iniquities are what have created this, this separation between us and God. By our behavior, we've said to God, God, I don't want what you're offering me. I don't want your ways. I don't want to follow you. I want to be my own master, my own God. I want to take my own path. I don't want you to squeeze me into your box and conform me to your image. I want to be my own person. And so so it's our sins that have made God turn his face away from us and not hear our prayers favorably. And then beginning in verse 3, Isaiah paints this picture of the extent of our sins. And he says that they sin with every part of their bodies from head to toe. Look at verse 3. He says they used their hands, their fingers, their lips, their tongues, 
to sin and word and deed. Look at verse 5 sometime. In the Bible, it's never a good thing when you're compared to snakes and spiders. Okay, spend some time with verse 5 sometime. In verse 6, Isaiah says they use their hands for violence. In verse 7, he says their feet, they run to, they run to do uh, evil. And then in verse 8, he summarizes their lives by saying they neither experience peace nor promote peace. Look at the first and last lines in verse 8. He says, they do not know the way of peace. And the last line, he says, whoever treads on them, who treads on the path that they take, does not know peace. And so what Isaiah is describing here is, is often called human depravity or total depravity. And that doesn't mean that our behavior is as evil as it could be. It doesn't mean that we actually sin in every conceivable way, in as, as egregious ways it was we could, but total depravity means that sin has permeated every aspect of our lives, from head to toe, inside and outside. And the human race embodies uh, what Paul war, uh, told us not to do in Romans 6. There he said, do not present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't say to sin, here, take my hands, take my eyes, take my lips, and do your work. You can have your way, sin. Do whatever you want with my body. He says, no, you're supposed to take your body. You've been bought with a price. You're supposed to present it to God as instruments of righteousness. And so we sin by nature and by choice. Not a few of us. Not most of us, not many of us, but every single one of us sins by nature and by choice. And we saw in verse 2, our, our sins create this separation between us and God. Therefore, we need this sin removed if we want this relationship with God restored. We saw last week in Isaiah 53, Brian taught how the Messiah was the suffering servant. He provided a way for our sin to be removed. Jesus bore our sins on our cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. The iniquity of us all fell upon him. Now, not everybody receives or, or wants the removal of sin. Only those who actually repent, meaning turn from their sin and turn back to God in faith. Those are the only ones who, who experience this removal of sin. And that's what Isaiah describes next in verses 9 through 13. He's talked about depravity, and now he talks about repentance. <clears throat> and these verses are written in first-person plural. He was talking second-person, you, your, but here we see it's in first-person plural. It talks about we and us, indicating the words of those who have come to a place of repentance. And again, we're going to just skim the surface of it, but the thing I want us to get with, without, any, without any confusion is that repentant people acknowledge their sinfulness without qualification and without excuses. Okay, Repentant people are done blaming other people. 
Repentant people are done comparing themselves favorably to others. They come directly to God and lay it out. Look at verse 9. Whereas unrepentant people either love the darkness or they reject the diagnosis that I'm in darkness. They say, what, well, what's, what are you talking about? I, I've got a good life. I'm a, basically a good person. But repentant people... They readily admit that they're walking in darkness and gloom. But it says, but we hope for light. That's what we want, but we're in darkness. We want brightness, but we're walking in gloom. If you were here when we looked at chapter 9, Isaiah said that when the Messiah comes, uh, a great, those that were living in darkness would see a great light. And Matthew 4 tells us that when Jesus moved to Galilee and he started his public ministry, that was the great light shining on dar in darkness. And what did he say? Jesus went around proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to experience the light, you need to turn from your sin, turn to me and enter the kingdom of God. In verse 10, the repentant not only admit that they're blind, look at the second line there. They also say, we grope like those who have no eyes. One commentator said that blindness can sometimes be corrected or healed. But the only solution for people who have no eyes is a new creation. That's where repentant people come. They come to this place. God, unless you intervene and, and make something new, I'm not going to see. I'm never going to see. Look at verse 12, how the, the repentant understand that they are speechless before God. They're without any defense. I mean, the second line says, and our sins testify against us. It's like, here's the witness stand. My sins are sitting there in the witness stand. My sins are explaining this is what's true of, of, of me. They're, they're ever before me. And this is the heart of repentance, admitting without qualification, without excuse, that it is our sin, it is my sin, it is my iniquity that has caused this separation between me and God. It's not the fact that my parents messed up. It's not the fact that I've had the bad, bad circumstances in life. It's my sin and my iniquity. And so if you're repentant, you're not trying to make a deal with God. You're not trying to convince God that he's wrong about his evaluation of you. You are absolutely coming clean without excuse and without qualification. And so I guess the, the, the question I want, you to, I want to ask you here this morning is, have you ever repented in that way without excuse and without qualification, as Isaiah describes? Have you ever taken an inventory of your sin and laid that list before God and said, this is what's true of me? This is absolutely what's true of me. If you have never done that, you will never understand justice, at least not the way the Bible talks about it. Uh, uh, as we mentioned before, justice not only refers to how we treat other people, how we treat other people fairly and rightly. Justice also, perhaps primarily, involves treating God justly, 
and rightly. And so sin isn't merely breaking a few random commands in a book somewhere. Uh, Sinning against God is likened to being a rebellious child or an unfaithful spouse, okay? And so most of us can can think of a time when we've been betrayed by someone, right? Can you bring to mind when somebody that you really care about has betrayed you? You got it in your mind? Multiply it by a million and you can begin to understand how God experiences our sin. You see, humanity is the crown of creation. God said, I'm going to create human beings and I'm going to give them my image. They're going to represent me on earth. They're going to declare to the, to the ends of the earth. They're going to fill the earth and multiply. And they're going to take my glory and my image to the ends of the earth. And so our sin is betrayal against God. When you read the Bible, God is the one with tears streaming down his face at how we have treated him. We're not the offended ones. God is the offended one. And unlike other so-called gods, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, he's just. His justice doesn't allow him to say, whatever, never mind, Uh, don't worry about that sin. No, the wages of sin is death. Justice demands that our sin be paid for. And the next section in Isaiah 59 describes how the Messiah will one day come as the conquering warrior to establish justice in a permanent, comprehensive way. If we want peace on earth in this way, this has to happen. And when Isaiah wrote about the Messiah, it wasn't at all clear that he would come the first time uh, in humility as a suffering servant and he would return as a conquering warrior the second time. So it's really not surprising that the Jews were expecting someone who would come and defeat the Romans and would be a political or even a military victor. Uh, But we understand that now. It's really only understood in retrospect. And I think there were some good reasons why it was was unclear in the Old Testament. Read 1 Corinthians 2.8 sometime if if you're interested there. But Next, he talks about justice. He's talked about depravity. He's talked about repentance. And next, he speaks about justice. So these verses depict God's reaction to the lack of justice. Verse 15, it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. Verse 16, he saw there's no man. He was astonished. There's nobody to intercede. So what did God do? He intervened. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Look at verse 17, and notice how the Messiah is dressed. Generally speaking, you could tell what somebody's about to do by how they're dressed. Oh, that person's going to the gym. That person is going hunting. Look at the way the Messiah is dressed. He's going to war. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate. He put on a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. 
And you ask the question, why is God going to battle? Well, because he's finally going to establish justice on the earth. And that involves defeating his enemies. It involves defeating those who have rejected him and his truth in favor of other gods who willingly, knowingly said, God, no, I don't want what you're offering. And so we read in verse 18, according to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands who will make recompense. Just like the gospel's going to the very ends of the earth, so too God's justice will extend to the coastlands, to the islands. And so they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And so that last imagery there suggests that whereas the first time Jesus came in humility and obscurity, he came the first time. You could ignore him, you could despise him, you could spit on him, you could nail him to a cross if you want. But the next time he's coming, he's coming in his fierce might. Nobody will be able to deny. Nobody will miss the coming of the Lord. And so Jesus said, don't be hoodwinked if people says, oh, the Messiah came. You missed it. He said, no, it's going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. In verse 20, notice how this warrior that Isaiah has been describing is called a redeemer. He says, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. And so those who turn from transgression, that's those who repent that we saw in verses 9 through 13. They will experience the Lord as their redeemer. This is the one who came to buy me back, to rescue me from sin for God's own possession. Everyone else will experience him as a conquering warrior. And Isaiah is describing what the rest of the Bible the Old Testament and the New Testament like alike called the day of the Lord. And that's a day when God comes to judge his enemies and to save his people. As David Kamara puts it, <clears throat> he will come to bring justice on the rebellious and redemption for the repentant. And this is consistent throughout the Bible. The, the prophets are, are full of this language. God will one day come injustice for judgment. Jesus talked about it more than anybody else. He said, the son of man is coming on the clouds. You need to know it. I'm coming on the clouds. Paul talked about it in many places. The book of Revelation is full of this imagery of God coming and, and finally establishing permanent, comprehensive peace on earth. And by the end of the book of Revelation, the redeemed are saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for this day. And depending on your circumstances, you're going to hear this very differently. Sometimes our, our well, I think many times, maybe most of the time, our affluence masks our need for this. We tend to think, you know, life is really pretty good. I don't know why everybody's so, so excited about this. But if you're a, a persecuted Christian or you're living in a war zone and you long for this peace and your life is just full of misery, suffering, turmoil, you say, come, Lord Jesus, rescue us, win the day, 
bring me home. And so in order to establish permanent, comprehensive peace on earth, sin has to be eradicated. Uh, Human depravity has to be eliminated. And so the Bible teaches that the unrepentant will spend eternity separated from God in hell, and the repentant will experience eternity in the presence of God in a refashioned heaven and earth. We will finally inhabit a place where we fit in every way. The new heaven and new earth will be the most radically God-centered, Christ-centered, spirit-centered existence imaginable. Now, I'm aware this teaching, the idea that God would judge us in, it is so out of step with modern thinking. And uh, perhaps you recoil from the idea that God will come in power to judge his enemies. And you may have said things to the effect of, you know, I don't know if I could, could worship a God like that. Uh, I, don't, I don't think a loving God would come in judgment or in justice. I don't think a loving God would send anybody to hell. I could never love a God like that. And I get that way of thinking. That used to be me. I can remember in high school, I said that, that exact type of thing. I'd tell people, I don't really believe in heaven. I don't really believe in, in hell. That I would simply plead with you to listen to the scriptures. Listen to the scriptures in humility and with a teachable heart. There's just way too much at stake to just form your own ideas and go with your own logic. We're told in Isaiah 55 that our ways are not his ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. His thoughts are higher than ours. They're so far above us we can't fathom. So we should not be shocked that God doesn't agree with us and agree with our logic. And it's not that we shouldn't give serious thought to honest doubts and questions. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that we have to give priority to God's word. We believe what we believe as followers of Christ because it's been revealed, not because it makes the most sense to us. And we need to understand how Scripture talks about our accountability to God himself. Now, this is a huge topic, and I don't know if this is what this stirs up in your heart, but let me just suggest two things that I find incredibly helpful. The first one is a a Scripture like 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. And there Peter is addressing this question about the delay of the the day of the Lord, the delay of the return of Christ. And Peter says this, he says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. God doesn't experience time the way we do. Then he says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, of his enemies. The delay of the return of the Lord is more evidence of his mercy and grace. And so soak in scriptures like that. God is more compassionate than you could fathom. And second, whenever you think about the justice of God, consider the cross. Because at the cross, 
God provided us a way to avoid the penalty of sin. Uh, At the cross, God provided a way for us to escape his justice on the last day. And so the wrath and the vengeance and the recompense that we would otherwise get on the last day, it was put on Jesus Christ. He experienced that penalty. So Jesus didn't merely die physically. Jesus died, in a sense, spiritually. He experienced hell for us, okay? And so that's what Jesus experienced. And so never accuse God of being uncaring or unmerciful. He so loved us that he sent his unique son to die for our sins. And that's at the heart of the covenant that's mentioned in the last verse. This is the fourth thing in verse 21. The Lord is speaking. He's speaking to the Redeemer mentioned in verse 20. He says, as for me, this is my covenant with them. He says, I want you to know I'm making a way. I'm providing a new relationship so that this separation can be closed. And this is what he says. He says, speaking to the Redeemer, my spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, they shall not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. And so we know from the Gospels that this covenant was enacted through the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, this cup at the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so this is the staggering truth about Christmas. The child who was born, the son who was given, willingly experienced the cross, on the cross, the justice of God that would, we would otherwise experience on the day of the Lord. I beg you, do not reject this message. Human depravity, we are more corrupt than we ever imagined. Repentance, it's an option. It's, a, it's an option. It's not a punishment. It's a gift. God didn't have to l- allow us to repent. Justice is coming. Recompense, judgment for God's enemies. But there's a covenant, not wanting any to perish, but for, for all to experience life. God sent his one and only son to bear our punishment. Heavenly Father, I pray for every person hearing of my voice, I pray that every person would turn to you in repentance, turn from themselves and from their sin, and turn to you in faith. God, may we never count as trivial what Jesus did on our behalf. God, Jesus came as as a, a suffering servant. He bore our sins. You tell us he's returning as a conquering warrior. God, I pray that every one of us would take that to heart turn to you in faith, and live accordingly. God, may we love your returning. May we love that you are a God of justice. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.